Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Evan coming back at you with another Left Unread. This will be part two of the uh, two-part episodes that I did with Ghost Stories Matt on James Angleton and James Angleton Mindset. And uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to my boy Jimmy Fallon Gong uh, from Program to Chill as he is the progenitor of the phrase Angleton Mindset. Uh, he even sells a t-shirt with that on it. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's where... I, I uh, got the idea for the uh, names for the episodes, and uh, Matt and I uh, referred to Angleton Mindset a number of times during it, so just wanted to uh, uh, give a shout out to Jimmy for that, and I uh, hope you enjoy the episode. I guess uh, to kick it off, would you like to uh, describe for us um, a mirror reading and a chrono? Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> Angleton loved his chronos. Um, he was yeah. obsessed with it. He had all this, you know, personalized jargon that he used to refer to the the work that he did at the CIA. So this is from um, Jefferson Morley. This is the best description of a chrono. Um, yeah. So a chrono is short for chronology. And Molly says this, it's one of the basic tools of intelligence analysis. It's a listing of facts on a given subject in chronological order. The evidence that goes into a chronology is first collected in a serial. A serial is basically a file containing every bit of information on a given subject in the order it was received. So I might get your address on day one, your date of birth on day two, an alias on day three, but then your real name and your real date of birth on day four and you don't replace the previous information you keep it all um mm -hmm. and the reason you keep it all is because there is no scanting of detail as molly says uh, there is no quarreling with the evidence if the report says that subject x showed up in place y on day z in it goes even if you know subject x had been buried in a distant city a month before that report as given means something and you can never know what for sure until the end of time if then so the idea is that even the disinformation or the lies or the falsehoods or the, 
the just incorrect facts, they can tell you something about yeah what, that that is data as yeah well. yeah because you can ask maybe why were we given this information who gave us this information you know um it's a recipe for extreme intense paranoia as we're going to see um yeah yeah but it, it's a uh, it's understanding the method yeah method and means i think is uh usually how that's described yeah and what angleton did is he would collect all these chronos, he would build them and put them together, and then he'd apply um, a literary critical, uh, sorry, a literary criticism technique called close reading, um, or you know, and mirror reading as well. He was a big fan of that, and this all comes from his grounding as a student of modernist literature and poetry. Mm-hmm. He was, um, yeah, he was a student of the school of new criticism, so. What he would do, as Molly explains, is uh, use new criticism and apply it to chronos to divine the hidden patterns and hidden meanings within this wealth of information that you've gathered. So this is what he did. So new criticism held that the meaning of a poem came from the poem itself and was completely independent of the history of the poet. Indeed, it was hardly necessary to know even the name of the poet. Done right, the new criticism teased out the significance of words to form a matrix of implication that allowed the meaning of a poem to emerge. Bear in mind, the Russians and the Americans have nukes at this point, and we are relying (laughs) on these guys doing this. And then we're basically just relying on people who are writing glorified term papers for English literature class. Just operating completely on vibes. Yeah, to, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's it's absolutely bananas. Um, I'm sure it has some utility up to a point, but... Yeah. Um, anyway, um, at some point, about a decade into Angleton's career as a counterintelligence analyst, he began to adapt the close reading of the new criticism to the identification of KGB penetration agents. You might think of it like this. The discrete bits of information in a chronology are like the words of a poem, each with its own freight of implication. When you quit thinking about the real world, the life and times of you know the poet and you concentrate on the meaning of the words so how these bits of trivia and information connect together then you begin to see at least to angleton's mind what the russians had hidden which was called to him the monster plot so (laughs) this is the idea that the kgb had penetrated the cia at every single level you know Mm -hmm. and i I think also the U.S. government as well. Um, this is what he became convinced of, that KGBs were absolutely everywhere. So yep. he's kind of gone full circle and ended up back at Joe McCarthy in an odd way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I didn't really think about it like that. Um, and yeah, it's... I I don't really... have. I've I've read and read and read about how he used this to you know, look at these documents and whatnot. And you hear accounts constantly of every time there was a new recruit who came into counterintelligence, they had to have a sit down with Angleton. This is when he's in his monster plot phase at this point. And he would, you know, pull the blinds in his office. He'd like snuff the light and he'd just put slides and projections on the walls. And it was (laughs) kind of like, um, you know, the always sunny in Philadelphia meme. Um, yeah. where he's in the mailroom and he's got the conspiracy chart. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's very, day, yeah. very much like that. He would just go off. And sometimes people could be in that room with him for five, six, seven hours on the first day 
while he lays out what the monster plot is and who all the suspected penetration agents are. And he's just plying you with, like, liquor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, is, is this is your first fucking day on the job. <laughs> you just come rolling out of there, and what do you do? Like, what does God want you to do with all that information after that? You, I just end up going to the bar again just to cry, try and drink it all away. Um, yeah, just like, God damn, but I can't, oh my God, dude. It's just, like, your first fucking day on the job. He calls you into his office at 8 a.m., the guy's reeking of booze. He's got this ill-fitting suit on. He's gaunt, uh, all disheveled, and he just fucking and he's just plying you with bourbon at like fucking eight in the morning. Yeah, and just, just, bada bing, bada boom, bada, <laughs> just rattling down this fucking list, and that's your entire first day. That's your induction. Yeah, <laughs> that that that's your orientation. Yeah. Oh my god, I can't even. Oh. <laughs> it's i mean it it speaks to the mindset at that point and the the, the paranoia of those cold war years you know that yeah. not only was he doing this but he was more or less sanctioned in doing it as well you know like the the higher ups at cia were kind of like well he he seems to have a handle on it all he seems to know all the yep. how all the pieces fit together so yeah yeah he he was kind of like allowed to like be his own little wing of the CIA. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, like, he was just, like, and, you know, you think that he's getting work done, but, I mean, he's just getting fucking wasted <laughs> and rattling off about, like, making textual analysis of chronologies. I think, in large part, a lot of it comes down to he was still highly respected for what he'd done in the war and, like, in the years yeah. immediately following it. And there was a sense of prestige. You know, we've got James Angleton working here. Now, yeah, the the Kim Philby thing sort of put a dent in his reputation. But but he got everybody. Yeah. And I think he was indulged as a result of that. You know, had they yeah. known that nothing at all was being achieved. <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Well, nothing good just... anyway. I mean, yeah, yeah. certainly I've got some suspicions about other things he did achieve or certainly worked on. But um, yeah. I guess we'll get to that. Um, but yeah. it's... And the whole time as well, he's losing himself to this paranoia about the monster plot and the the big, scary USSR has just basically infiltrated every element, every part of American society. Yeah, And at the same time, he's still attending poetry readings in the evenings and, you know, going to art galleries at the weekends and all this kind of yep. shit. And so he's still got this this image of himself as like a refined, sophisticated man even as he's spiraling further and further into the, yeah. the chaos dimension. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think I said this before, but, like, also, like, what everybody says, too, is, like, over the year, like, he was noticeably, like, becoming, like, sickly over the years. He was too. losing like, people it, yeah. Talk yeah, people were talking about, like, like his, his suits just stopped fitting him. It was, like, all ill-fitting. Like, he was uh, just getting skinnier and skinnier, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, just like just this, and he was you know he was kind of a tall dude too, so he's just like this weird menacing like shadow hovering over people, just reeking yeah. of booze. Yeah, there's was um, reeking of martinis. There's the famous picture of him carrying Alan Dulles's ashes, and yeah. he just looks hollowed out completely. Yeah. in that picture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was always like a skinny guy, but yeah, when he's old, like it's just like my god, mm -hmm. man, he's just looking like a skeleton. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. So um, you know, this is how. <laughs> so that's how James Angleton thought it was a, a useful way to analyze 
uh, intelligence. And, uh, and there's like, and, uh, Angleton was also like kind of involved with Lee Harvey Oswald, uh-huh. which I think is really interesting. And he would, uh, desperately try to scrub, uh, his, uh, uh, sort of, um, the fact that he was, he was basically like following Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, you know, at least on paper uh, for like years, like leading up to the assassination. Mm-hmm. And then like, he was like, I can, I just have this image of like a drunken James Angleton desperately trying to cover his tracks and failing miserably <laughs> <laughs> once, uh, once, uh, uh, JFK is killed. But, um, yeah. So Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, for those who don't know, defected to the USSR, uh, in 1959, and at that point, Angleton uh, personally controlled Lee Harvey Oswald's CIA file, mm-hmm. which was quite a large file, by the way. And um, if I can do a brief aside, too, uh, uh, Lee, Lee Harvey Oswald worked at a spooked-up military base in Japan uh, at Sugi mm-hmm. uh, on U-2 bombers, and then he goes to the Soviet Union, and suddenly a U-2 is shot down which derails uh, detente talks between the Soviet Union and the United States, and then Lee Harvey Oswald comes back. Yeah, and he's he's just way through customs as yeah, well yeah, oh, when he arrives in America. Through, given, like, a couple thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll give you back your citizenship, because you, you had to renounce your citizenship to uh, defect to the Soviet Union. They just offer it right back to him uh, with a nice little stipend of, like, $2,000. Yeah. And then settle him with a bunch of spooks in Dallas, Texas. Yep. Including, if I'm not mistaken, um, wasn't one of his landladies, like, Alan Dulles's friend or yeah, something? Uh, it's, yeah. It's been quite a while since I've read all the... I think, uh, yeah, I think it was uh, the apartment that Marina lived in. The landlord was, yeah, I think, like, a, like she was, like, a... Uh, friends with Alan Dulles are like very heavily tied into the CIA and that was when uh, like Lee Harvey Oswald was kind of like he was in New Orleans and Marina was in Dallas I think mm, yeah right yeah and the landlord was a uh, she was spooked up and then obviously uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was friends with like um uh uh and Schill and um Ruth Payne that was her name yeah Ruth yeah. Payne yep yeah um, um but yeah so uh that's uh, just just a funny little thing that I wanted to mention that uh, person the the that he personally controlled Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, CIA file and uh, Angleton dragged his feet on opening a CIA 201 file on Oswald for a year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, it was the the 201 file it was uh, I forget the exact uh, what it is but like you're supposed to open that like immediately I forget I forget when you're supposed to open it but um. He like kind of like did not want to open the two of one file on Oswald, and uh, again he had like a, you know, personally controlled the file, and it's possible that Lee Harvey Oswald figured heavily into Angleton's mole hunt. Yeah, um, I mean I I don't want to hijack this and make it like a JFK episode yeah. or something, but I will say that when I was growing up, it was seen as kind of you know the it's the conspiracy theory, I guess, isn't it? And yeah, um, <clears throat> but I mean, it's probably the one with the most uh, public buy-in yeah, of all time. Yeah, and I remember that it was kind of a, it was kind of a subject of ridicule for quite a few years. You know, like if you believe that, you also believe in little green men at Roswell and so on and so yeah. forth. But I remember when I was really beginning to get interested in 
spies and intelligence agencies and all the rest of it reading about jfk yeah come on you know like i don't know how anyone of honest intention can read about jfk and these constellations of weird connections and strange choices that were made by people in power who had the you know the power to prevent it happening i don't know how anyone can come away from it thinking like it really was just Lee Harvey Oswald, and that's it. I'm, yeah, you're you're either being disingenuous, um, thinking that, or like, you know, I I I I I guess you know, it's definitely. I think it's funny too because I think it's in liberal circles more that um, that the official story is believed, and I, I have to imagine that's part of it because like these people benefit from the system, and also you know what I mean that that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. I was, it, you benefit from the system. You grow up believing all the correct things and having the correct mm-hmm. opinions, and that means that you get the you know you get the best rewards for that. You know. Yeah, you go you go to you know you go to your school uh, to a good school. You get a good job afterwards. Mm-hmm. Everything's working well for you, and so like you know uh, I, I feel like there's there's sort of a I, I get, like you said before I don't really want to do an armchair uh, <laughs> uh, a therapist thing, but like I feel like it's kind of like a you know. The system's working for you, yes. so just believe that you know. Believe what the system's telling you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, because it, it, you you have the belief that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, because that is what sensible people believe. You know, and I yeah, have. And I've you're been, a sensible person. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Oh, God. Mm. Yeah, I, I I feel like like you only need to do cursory reading about it, yeah, to come away with knowing like, oh yeah, he, he was absolutely killed by his own government. I mean, fucking uh, Robert McNamara, who was Kennedy's uh, uh uh Secretary of Defense, I believe. Um, Robert McNamara straight up told like David Talbot uh, that David Talbot got it completely right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, uh, with his book, uh, The Brothers, about the Kennedy brothers and the assassination. And that's fucking Robert McNamara. This guy in Kennedy's cabinet was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're 100% right. Yeah. Like, everybody knew at the time, you know what I mean? Yeah. Fucking, uh, Robert, uh, not Robert, um, uh, President Ford, he, uh, uh, like, straight up accidentally mentioned, uh, said that, uh, uh, made, like, a comment about the CIA's assassinations in the 60s. And when everybody was just like, the assassinations he was like oh uh, i meant the foreign ones <laughs> like you know what i mean like obviously and then nixon calling it you know the whole bay of pigs thing yep, it's like yep. everybody fucking knew yeah there were five future u.s presidents in dallas on november 22nd 1963 you think that's fucking uh you think that's like a uh uh an accident no like there there's a message being sent there i mean, you know what I mean? The, the one thing i cannot stand and i just i don't even engage with it when people bring it up is you know the whole thing about was he or wasn't he going to pull out of vietnam was he or wasn't he he already was i mean to me it's kind of irrelevant we're talking about james angleton here this is the guy who would turn up to work smashed out of his head like every monday morning you know at six and immediately set to work constructing this elaborate fictional world full of kgb agents hiding around every corner are yep. any of these people thinking logically you know like they want yeah, no, these guys yeah, wanted to fucking, new, <laughs> like like we've we've already made mention of how many of the characters in this episode are fucking hammered yeah. from the word go every day they wanted to like nuke these are north not rational korea, people man. you know what i mean they wanted to nuke north korea they tried to yep. coup italy it's like 
I don't think it matters if Kennedy himself genuinely wanted to withdraw from Vietnam or genuinely wanted to introduce like socialist reforms into America. It's the perception of him by these people. That is what matters. And if they perceive him to be a peacenik or lean in too close to the left or something like that, they're not going to hesitate to act, you know. And it's not just JFK too, you know, I mean, because like you, you have to look at it and you look at JFK and then you see RFK. Yeah. Right there fucking next to him. And then you see Ted Kennedy right fucking there next to them. And all of a sudden you start like, you know, I mean, like FDR, there were multiple coup attempts against FDR. And all of a sudden you start looking at JFK and you're wondering, fuck, is this like the return of the New Deal? Yeah. Are these fucking uh, are these uh, liberal idealists from Boston? You know, like you have JFK. And then when he's done, is RFK going to run? And JFK is so fucking popular. Now, now you start worrying, oh my God, is there going to be a new dynasty yeah. of New Deal progressivism? And that's all it takes. You it's, know what I mean? I think of it as a kind of a mafia boss mentality where the, the yeah. boss becomes convinced that one of his guys is talking to the police, right? Yeah. So he has to go. It doesn't matter at that point if that guy really is snitching or you just, stealing or yeah, whatever it might be. If you believe that he is snitching you, you are going to have him killed. And then if his family kind of raises up and say they're going to come after you, well, you have to kill them as well. It, yeah. it doesn't have to be this complicated, like talking about, well, he wrote this memo on that day and he did this memo on that day. It's like, think no. about what they thought about him. And it makes a lot more sense why it happened, you know. Yeah. And then also Alan Dulles was one of the uh, the biggest tells of all time. <laughs> when uh, David Talbot uh, mentions JFK to him and he says, uh, wait, was it? No, not sorry, not David Talbot. David Talbot writes about it. But uh, a reporter mentioned JFK to Alan Dulles after the assassination and said that like basically a black cloud came over Alan Dulles's face. Yeah. And he just says that little Kennedy, he thought he was a god. Yes. Yes. Like, you know, what I mean, like he's not even trying to hide it at that point. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> I'll point it to the Warren Commission as well. Just yeah, the uh, Dulles Commission, and then and also Alan Dulles, uh, a bunch of traffic going to and from his house in the weeks leading up to the assassination, and yep. then on the weekend of he disappears up to the CIA site, the farm. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that's Michael going to ground. You know, while his hitmen go out and kind of take out all the heads of the other five families, sort of thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. From the Godfather, yeah. It's um, it, it is that you you get that mafia boss mindset if you can come to understand that and the paranoia and the fear of losing power and control that takes over you when you're at that level then you understand why they did it you know um i was going to say something else oh the i mean the string of witnesses that die suddenly mysteriously after the fact again that is just mafia cleanup shit you know it's yeah and not not even after the warren commission but then uh when uh the the investigations start happening in the 70s you have a new round (laughs) of fucking uh uh, people uh dying with multiple gunshots to their head and shit (laughs) by suicide somebody shot themselves in the back of the head two times you know what i mean shit like that and it's ruled a suicide fucking uh yeah no it absolutely is yeah and i mean uh, and also like if you read uh uh just to go back to the godfather if you read fucking um francis ford coppola's comments most especially about the godfather part two he's very clearly uh making reference to like uh american behavior post uh uh world war Two. yeah you know yeah. what i mean mm-hmm. um like he's very open about the fact that the godfather is supposed to be like a uh, criticism of uh, American imperialism mm-hmm. post World War Two. 
Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but um it's yeah, last thing I'll say about this. I am so yeah. sorry that I've got us off on a fucking JFK tangent. Oh, dude, <laughs> I could talk about this fucking all day long. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the the last thing I'll say about it as well is if you look at like the cinema and the pop culture of the late sixties and seventies and stuff, it seems like there was much more acceptance that there was something deeply strange and unnerving about the JFK hit beyond the fact oh, that yeah. he got killed. <laughs> You know, incredibly like uh, paranoid si- yeah, movies. Paranoid, cynical, deeply suspicious of what the people in power have to tell them. If you look now at like newspaper coverage of it when it's mentioned, it it's maybe um, what thirty seconds before the the journalist writing the story starts like mocking it by talking about little green yeah. men at Roswell and tinfoil yeah. hat wearing whatever. And it's like that itself is an effect of the CIA's like control of the narrative around what happened. You know. Oh, dude. Uh, so, um, t- uh, two years ago, uh, we we did an episode on uh, Oliver Stone's movie JFK, and we and we released it on November twenty second. Mm-hmm. And fucking uh, like, we got like hounded on Twitter by people thinking that we were like a pro QAnon podcast there you and go. shit like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's what they yeah. do so well. Um, yeah, is they manage to kind of marry us, who kind of just look at this stuff rationally i think and draw fairly yeah. conservative conclusions you know in the grand scheme of things and they try and they successfully a lot of the time marry us to people like you know q and on or whatever yeah. it might be and it that again is a deliberate strategy you know to discredit yeah. whatever it is you've got to say not that yeah, i'm I mean, like I, really important or anything i'm not saying they're trying to discredit me personally just you know yeah no no the, it's the, just the, the, idea. the they shit coat the entire de- idea of it yeah and I, I mean, that that's one of the reasons I love, like, your podcast so much is because, like, I feel like you, you are very much like me where it's just about following the money. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? Like, like you're just, like, it's, like, the way that power operates and that money operates. Yeah. And the, the fact is that now we're in a situation where an accurate description of that, of how power operates and what money um, buys... That in itself is now seen as a conspiracy theory, you know. Yeah, it's... yeah. The fact that like capital will collude. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, well, like, you know, that uh, capitalist oligarchs will collude with each other. Yeah. Um, in order to like maintain control. I mean, it's just it seems so obviously believable because it, I mean, why it, wouldn't that happen? Yeah, I... But that's considered to be a conspiracy. You yeah, know yeah. I mean? Like conspiracy theory. Uh. So. Uh, Angleton uh, also, you know, related to the uh, that whole Bay of Pigs thing, to use Nixon's words. Um, yep. He would also, uh, uh, at least after the fact, <clears throat> uh, lampoon the Bay of Pigs. Um, although, <clears throat> uh, you know, after it fails, he um, he blamed it on Castro's incursion into Miami. Uh, all despite the fact that he had supported it beforehand. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think this is, like, really kind of emblematic. Again, like we said with Lee Harvey Oswald, it's at this point that Angleton is really, like, his tires are spinning. Yeah. And he's constantly trying to, like, clean up from his fucking mistakes or things that he supports and shit like that. I mean, he's in, in so <laughs> many ways, he is a, a classic creature of bureaucracy. I mean, yeah. think of every job you've ever had. There's always a layer of little shits who fuck something up and then they try and spin yeah. and wheedle their way out of it and apportion blame to other people you know for what they've done mm-hmm. yeah 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 absolutely and i mean just the entire idea that castro had an incursion into miami like i'm, <laughs> I'm sorry man I, uh, 
There is nobody on the face of this earth that is more fucking fascist and disgusting than, like, fucking pro, uh, than anti-Castro Cubans. I mean, these are the most fucking insane people on it. Like, they would, will, they would be, uh, they would be happier seeing the entire population of Cuba destroyed mm-hmm. than for it to continue communist. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, the entire idea that Castro had an incursion into Miami. These are, fu- like, d- these are fucking freaks yeah yeah (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) this is when you get into this situation where because you know guys like angleton and yeah groups like operation 40 and alpha 66 and all these cuban exile groups any any time you have a group of people who are given permission to work completely in the dark completely free of accountability the things they start coming up with to justify the things they want to do can only get more and more you know, outrageous and unhinged. And I sometimes question like, yeah, Cuban incursion into Florida is a ridiculous proposition, but I'm sure that may be one of those things that started as something they, they knew was bullshit as they peddled it, but then they start convincing themselves of it, you know? Yeah. And again, because they're fucking all hammered. Yeah. And there's nobody there to open the door and get some daylight in the room and open the windows and say, come on guys, you know, like breathe in the fresh air chill the fuck out yeah yeah you're so drunk that you don't remember when the thought started or why it did yeah yeah you know what i mean <laughs> but yeah oh, god damn but um yeah and then uh now this is the real thing that i think we're we're about to get into uh the galitsin nosenko affairs mm-hmm. and uh i like even now like i don't know what the fuck to make of these <laughs> two guys i have a bit of a theory, but I'm like only willing to say that like maybe I believe it thirty or forty percent. Yeah, yeah. But suddenly two defectors come in from the Soviet Union. And the first one is named Anatoly Galitsin. And the second one is named uh I forget his first name, but it's Nosenko. And these guys fuck Angleton's shit <laughs> up. <laughs> the, like fucking Anatoly Galitsin becomes like the Grima worm tongue to uh, <laughs> James Angleton's fucking uh, the king of uh, fucking Rohan or whatever uh, King Aomer. Um no Aomer's the son whatever uh, <laughs> not gonna get into Lord of the Rings right now but uh yeah like he's just like this like weird freaky little man just whispering into Angleton's ears and Angleton is just fucking <laughs> eating that shit up dude so in December 1961, <clears throat> Anatoly Galitsyn visited with a CIA officer in Helsinki, Finland, and said he wanted to defect to the U.S. immediately. His defection is approved. He had been recommended as a defection candidate years earlier by Peter Deryabin, another KGB defection. Now, an aide of Angleton's called Galitsyn, quote, a very difficult individual to accommodate. Another report put it more bluntly. He was a, quote, total son of a bitch. <laughs> And, like, dude, this guy, again, another fucking drunken little lecherous freak. Um, so, some of Galitsyn's intelligence was good and actionable, but some was less than stellar or not that interesting. Now, he said the Soviets had a spy in the British Admiralty, which was true. And he said someone codenamed Sasha was a mole in the CIA, and their name began with a K and ended in Ski or Sky. Sounds Polish. They had been a mole for over ten years. This story was partially supported in the figure of Peter Carlo, a.k.a. Peter Klebansky. Uh, 
While he was removed from duty and his background matched much of what Galitzin said, being in Germany after the war, technical skill in eavesdropping, no hard evidence was ever found against him, and he passed a polygraph, for what that's worth. Uh, now, Galitzin also detailed a wide-ranging strategy of the KGB to dismantle the reasoning power of the United States and its NATO allies, and Angleton was all fucking in. As we've said before, Angleton was already kind of starting, you know, the, the Kim Philby affair fucking just sent his paranoia into the stratosphere. Yep, yep. And, you know, Philby was the mole that had infiltrated the highest levels of Western intelligence. But Angleton was convinced that there must be another one. So, uh, as we said before, in 1963, Philby finally defected to the Soviet Union 12 fucking years after he had first been fingered as a possible double agent. And, uh, you know, as I said before, he gave what was described as a, quote, very limited confession and was left free in Beirut, Lebanon, and then he finally jumped ship. Now, Galitzin claimed there was a ring of five Soviet agents in the UK, and this was kind of proving to be an understatement. Up until that time, Angleton had continued to believe that Philby was innocent. Uh, now, but Angleton confided in Philby far beyond what any other spook had done with a friendly country. And so, you know, again, this is kind of goes to why he uh, uh, started um, spiraling. Uh, at this time, Angleton was also involved in Cuba policy, issuing, including issuing a memo that broadcast, before it happens, some of Lee Harvey Oswald's movements before the assassination of Kennedy. Mm -hmm. uh, mainly the Mexico City Cuban consulate as a contact point for U.S.-based communist sympathizers. And this is the famous um, uh, short, fat guy. <laughs> was claiming to be Lee Harvey Oswald yeah. in the uh, uh, Mexican uh, Cuban consulate, and this is like very famous uh, for for my listeners that don't know. This is again going back to JFK, like all of the fucking information that is uh, tangential or or uh, surrounding the assassination, like that there are strange Lee Harvey Oswalds that look nothing like Lee Harvey Oswald talking, going to shooting ranges, talking about how much they want to kill Kennedy fucking uh going to the mexican consulate despite the fact you know lee harvey oswald he's like a skinny guy this dude is like short fat bald and much older than lee harvey oswald and he's claiming that uh you know he wants to defect to cuba and then back to the soviet union um and uh <clears throat> there is uh there's also this story about angleton maybe trying to hypnotize an assassin to kill castro uh, he was involved in some respect with the program ZR Rifle, which was a CIA plot to kill Castro that included uh, uh, mafia men, Santos Traficante, Johnny Roselli, and Sam Giancana, which are all high-ranking mafia men. Okay. Yeah, a little bit of trivia, actually, as well, about Johnny Roselli and Sam Giancana. So, obviously, these guys were involved in some way with these Cuban operations, Giancana, I think, was also aware of the JFK hit, you know, to some extent. Yeah. We were talking about the, the witnesses who got taken care of, you know, in the 70s as, um, yeah, the new new round of investigation started um, happening into the CIA conduct. So um, Johnny Roselli, obviously, he was supposed to be Bugsy Siegel's replacement in Las Vegas. He gets found mm -hmm. in a barrel before he can uh, speak to the select committee. <laughs> Yep. Sam Giancana is killed in his safe house that's under 24-hour protection by the Chicago Police Department. 
uh, which is, you know, and he's due to talk to um, people investigating CIA activity as well. What's also interesting is the guy who killed Sam Giancana is the guy that the Joe Pesci character in Casino is based off, Tony the Ant Spolatro. So really? you're ever doing a pub quiz or something, that's a good thing to have yep. in your back pocket. That's who that guy's based on. Um, yep. And somehow, yeah, he got into Sam Giancana's police protected house and blew his head off well the, the chicago police were also kind of spooked up yeah too, you know? exactly exactly i mean they're, they're the ones who did the hit on um um god why can't i think of his name uh the black panther leader oh yeah fred hampton my bad yeah fred hampton okay yeah. Yeah, yeah thank you but yeah so uh the chicago police were also spooked up you know they uh they killed fred hampton the black yeah. panther leader <clears throat> But yeah, no, uh, and again, I would recommend my listeners to uh, uh, listen to um, uh, uh, Ghost Stories for the End of the World. It also has a, a long series on uh, the uh, the way that the mafia and the CIA were connected. And then when the CIA finally double-crossed the mafia yep, and yep. basically kneecapped them. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> but yeah, so... Um, uh, as we said before, Lee Harvey Oswald was on Angleton's radar since his defection and was monitored through all of his stops, culminating in Dallas, 1963. Angleton even hunted for a mole in Mexico City, the site of some uh, shady goings-on with a large, heavy-set man calling himself Lee Harvey Oswald, as we said. Uh, Angleton would also be involved in the cover-up of the Kennedy assassination, recruited by Dulles himself when Dulles was aiming to get on the Warren Commission and the CIA's ongoing interest in Oswald News, leading up to the assassination of JFK was hidden from the commission.
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, so we talked about uh, we talked about Galitzin. This is around the time that Galitzin is coming into the United States. It's also, you know, Angleton getting kind of lost in all this JFK stuff. And then the thing that really fucks up Angleton and also uh, uh, Yuri Nosenko himself was the defection of Yuri Nosenko. And so in January 19... Uh, uh, oh, yeah, so uh, CIA assets and KGB spy Yuri Nosenko defects. And uh, he's given a generous stipend indefinitely with retirement benefits by the U.S. Yeah. When he defects. Uh, however, uh, it would be a while until he would collect on that because Angleton was convinced that Yuri Nosenko was a false defector. And he was convinced of this because of the whisperings of Anatoly Galitsyn. And this would uh, prove to be bad fucking news for Nosenko <laughs> as he would end up getting housed uh, during his interrogations and then in a CIA black site for four fucking years. A total of 1,277 days in brutal isolation. And the conditions were, folks, they were not good. And I'll read them to you right now. Alright, so... In a deposition given to a congressional... So this is from uh, David Martin's Wilderness of Mirrors. In a deposition given to a congressional committee years later, Nevsenko described what happened after he was fluttered. An officer of CIA started to shout that I was a phony, and immediately several guards entered the room. The guards ordered me to stand by the wall to undress and checked me. After that, I was taken upstairs in an attic room. The room had a metal bed attached to the floor in the center of this room. Nobody told me anything, how long I would be there, or what would happen to me. After several days, two officers of CIA started interrogations. I tried to cooperate, and even in evening hours, was writing for them whatever I could recollect about the KGB. These officers were interrogating me about a month or two months. The tone of interrogations was hostile. Then they stopped to come to see me until the end of 1964. I was kept in this room until till the end of 64 and beginning of 65. Nosenko was forced to rise every morning at 6 a.m. and was not permitted to lie down again until 10 p.m. The conditions were very poor and difficult. I could sh uh, have a shower once in a week, and once in a week I could shave. I was not given a toothbrush and toothpaste, and food given to me was very poor. I did not have enough to eat and was hungry all the time. I had no contact with anybody to talk. I could not read. I could not smoke, and I even could not have fresh air to see anything from this room. The only window was screened and boarded. The only door of the room had a metal screen, and outside in the corridor, two guards were watching me day and night. The only furniture in the room was a single bed and a light bulb. The room was very, very hot in summertime. So he was just kept in that fucking attic for years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's uh, another description here, on uh, again from Martin. The interrogation of Nosenko was resumed at the end of 1964. The first day they kept me under 24 hours interrogation, he later testified. All interrogations were done in a hostile manner. I asked how long it would continue. I was told that I would be there 3,860 days and even more. I was taken by guards blindfolded and handcuffed in a car and delivered to an airport and put in a plane. I was taken to another location where I was put into a concrete room with bars on a door. According to Hart, Nosenko's new prison had been built especially to house him and resembled nothing so much as a bank vault. It was a very expensive construction because it consisted of heavy steel reinforced concrete. As Nosenko described it, his cell was furnished with a single steel bed and a mattress. No pillow, no sheet, and no blanket. 
During winter, it was very cold and asked to be given a blanket, which I received after some time. I was watched day and night through TV camera. Trying to pass the time a couple of times, I was making from Thread's chess set. This is, uh, he has broken English, so I'm just reading directly from him. And every time when I finished those sets, immediately guards were entering in my cell and taking them from me, according to Hart. He also made himself a calendar out of lint from his clothing. He was desperately trying to keep track of the time, but in the course of his having been compelled to sweep up his room or clean up his room, why these calendars were, of course, ruined, so he had to start all over again. Nosenko said, I was desperately wanting to read, and once when I was given a toothpaste, I was found in a toothpaste box a piece of paper with description of components of this toothpaste. I was trying to read it under blanket, but guard noticed it, and again it was taken from me. Mm. He wasn't even allowed to read the fucking ingredients. It was toothpaste. This is how bored he was. Um, Any slight suggestion that he's getting any kind of relief um, (laughs) from his situation. Yep. After nearly two years in the vault, Nosenko was granted 30 minutes a day for exercise. So he was in the vault for two years, just straight up. After nearly two years in the vault, Nosenko was granted 30 minutes a day for exercise in a small yard next to his cell. The area was surrounded by a chain link fence and by a second fence that I could not see through, Nosenko said. The only thing I could see was the sky. So he was kept in an attic for two years and then a bank vault for two years. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, there's also a, one more thing that I want to read that I <laughs> thought was very interesting. And this is about um, a CIA officer talking about what they uh, their conclusions for the Nosenko problem. Alright, so Bagley, who is a CIA officer, was willing to contemplate about almost anything to avoid what he called the devastating consequences of awarding Nosenko his bona fides. So this is when the CIA is arguing about whether or not Nosenko is real. He jotted down, for my fleeting use only, a list of alternative actions that could be taken to liquidate and insofar as possible to clean up traces of a situation in which CIA could be accused of illegally holding Nosenko. Fifth on the list was liquidate the man. And here's the real kicker right here. Number six was render him incapable of giving coherent story, special dose of drug, etc. Possible aim, commitment to loony bin. Number seven was commitment to Looney Bin without making him nuts. And this, back to JFK, reminds me of when Jack Ruby uh, was uh, going to be put on trial or, or was going to testify to, uh, I think he was going to testify to the uh, uh, House Select Committee on Assassinations. And then Jolly West, Louis Jolly on West, meets with him, walks out of the room, and Jack Ruby, who before that meeting was totally sane, was now a raving lunatic. Yep. Yep. Um, Jolly West is a CIA uh, head shrinker, basically. Yeah. He was. Uh, he, he is the CIA's uh, Dr. Feelgood. Yeah. Um, he was the um, kind of a, a, one of the key architects, I guess, of the, the MK Ultra project, especially like through mm-hmm. the 60s. Um, I would yeah. recommend people check out uh, Chaos by Tom O'Neill if you want more background on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he he constantly pops up whenever people need to be interrogated or uh, checked. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, like he's uh, he's involved in the uh, the American air uh, airmen who uh, confessed to committing war crimes in Korea. Yeah, uh, he's the first person they see when they come back to the United States. Yeah, in fact, I think yeah, it was the uh, the American airmen who confessed to those war crimes. That was the impetus behind the the search to develop like you know the manchurian candidate th- 
thing. Like yeah, even though it had really been begun years before, but that was claimed yeah. to be the the reason why they started. Yeah. Um, yep. He killed an elephant as well with LSD, which is probably the thing yeah. that everybody <laughs> who's like <laughs> just interested in this stuff knows. Is, yeah. Ice that elephant. Yeah. 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 Yeah, anybody who uh, used to go on Arrowhead back in the day, when uh, <laughs> was, I'm sure has heard about that story. Um, but yeah, no, it's a uh, he is a uh, yeah he's a name that constantly pops up constantly mm-hmm. uh, with uh, any sort of MK Ultra or interrogation uh, involving the CIA. You'll you'll see his name a lot. Yeah, yeah, yep. <clears throat> so now, prior to Nosenko's defection. Everything Galitsyn had predicted came true, including that. Uh, so uh, Galitsyn had claimed that one KGB and one GRU agent would falsely defect, uh, which both happened, and they were codenamed Scotch and Bourbon. <laughs> Again, these guys cannot fucking get liquor off the mind, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Scotch and Bourbon. Yep. Uh, Galitsyn then confirmed the suspicions of Angleton and others, and said Nosenko was a false defector there to stir up trouble in the CIA. Mm-hmm. Now, dear listener. I would like to propose to you, was Galitsyn actually uh, the false defector? And he was sent there to, uh, 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 you know, was, uh, what did um, perhaps the Soviet Union know about uh, Angleton's predilections to insanity? And did they send Galitsyn there as a false defector to become his uh, sort of Grima worm tongue? And, uh, and then Galitsyn, like Nosenko, was actually a true defector. And basically uh galitsyn sold him out knowing that he was a true defector mm-hmm. it this is certainly feels that way you know yeah i mean every time i read about this like i keep coming back to and i don't it's like what you said before about all of these and galitsyn was one of these two galitsyn was also a lush so it's like all of these people are so fucking drunk all the time it's just like it's tough to tell it's like are any of these things planned or is everybody just fucking flying by the seam of their pants you know what i mean yeah i mean with angleton as well there's a lot going on i imagine in terms of memories of kim philby not wanting to be pantsed again and so you know he's got every reason in the world to even if he's wrong you know about galitsen he's got every reason in the world to cover that up um and find a way to make it work because if not it's like twice in the space of 10 years that he's fucked up something this huge and the thing is, Galitsyn seems like he is perfectly designed to tap into Angleton's yeah. particular uh, predilections, <laughs> his particular uh, insanity. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like he seems like he is like lab formed to fucking latch into the things in Angleton's mind that makes Angleton Angleton. Yeah, yeah. and that's why, like, like I said before, like maybe I'm thirty or forty percent there, but I don't know, like. Like, Galitsyn really seems like he he was a false defector that was used to compromise the counterintelligence chief of the West. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that Nosenko was the true one. I mean, it goes to the Angleton phrase that he loves so much, you know, the wilderness yeah. of mirrors. I mean, yeah. th- this is exactly what that is. You, yeah. How do you believe anything that you're being told? You know, ultimately, you have to make a decision about something. And you, you never really entirely sure that you have, you know, made the right one. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, like, so Galitsyn, too, like, he, like, Angleton was convinced that the KGB was this, like, insanely, like, 
masterful organization of penetration and intelligence. Yeah. And Galitzin absolutely feeds on that. And so the thing is too, like, I think it's also entirely possible that Galitzin was just he once he was in the US, figured out who Angleton was and made himself useful. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like that's why I say that like I'm not sure if he was intentionally misleading Angleton or if he just did it because he realized the opportunity in front of him. Yeah. yeah. You know? But yeah, so Galitzin stormed up and down that the Sino-Soviet split was fake, but couldn't present any evidence to support the claim, and many others in the CIA questioned the information in general that he gave. Not Angleton, though. Angleton fucking ate it up. <laughs> uh, Galitzin and Nosenko would actually also routinely give up similar information months apart from each other, and despite both of them working in totally different parts of Soviet intelligence. Like, uh, you know... Generally speaking, like we've talked about with the CIA, but intelligence in general, you compartmentalize. Yeah. And Galitsyn and Nosenko were like totally in totally different parts of intelligence, and yet they were constantly giving up the same intelligence. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And this uh, this includes giving up the turned British spy William John Vassal, and also giving up bugs hidden in the American embassy in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> Um, now, Nosenko was heavily involved in the KGB's work with Lee Harvey Oswald and specifically flatly denied that the USSR or KGB had used LHO as an asset and, in fact, did not want him to stay in the USSR until he had tried to kill himself and were happy to be rid of him when he left. They basically thought he was a fucking moron. Yeah. And um, and they were convinced that not only was he a moron, but that he was an, an American agent. Yeah, yeah. And like, like, and that's why, like, oh, so, so they online, were going, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they were, <laughs> they were like going to turn him away, and then Lee Harvey Oswald like cut his wrist, mm. and they were like, all right, fine, but then they like shuffled him away to like some shoe factory or something in Minsk. Yeah, kind of keep him out of the way, like keep him. Yeah, out of trouble. they're like, fine, you can stay here, but uh, <laughs> we're not gonna let you anywhere near Moscow. Um, now, uh, so Nosenko swore up and down. He's like, yeah, no, Lee Harvey Oswald, we were happy to be rid of him when he finally decided to leave. They basically kicked his ass, uh, kicked him in the ass mm -hmm. out the door. You know what I mean? And, um, this was also bad news for Nosenko because a lot of folks decided that this was, that this meant he was full of shit or maybe they were just covering their own tracks. Uh, you know, I mean, like, if Nosenko was saying that Lee Harvey Oswald was definitely not an agent of the KGB, and you know that he wasn't an agent of the KGB because he was an agent of the CIA. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You might want to be like, oh, yeah, this dude's full of shit. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Nosenko would eventually begin drinking heavily and evading questions by, again, all these fucking people. I mean, I guess, you know, if you're working in intelligence, you know, you're you're engaging in some of the worst shit you can do on Earth. I guess that's the only way to fucking drown it out. I kind of, I'm always put in mind of the thing that they say about British journalists as well. That they're, they're so full of self-loathing at the bullshit that they do every single day that, <laughs> you know, materially corrodes the fabric of this society that most of the time the only way they can get through the day is to just be completely shit-faced, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as you're writing yet another story years later about how Jeremy Corbyn was anti-Semitic. <laughs> <laughs> just keep going back to the hits, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, uh, 
So Nisenka would eventually begin drinking heavily and evading questions by the Americans. This is before his detainment. Um, and the Americans became convinced that he was a disinfo agent, largely based on Angleton. Yeah. Like, Angleton was, like, leading the way for this, you know? Um, now, this had to do with the Scotch affair, which is Scotch, the, the, uh, the, the defector, not Scotch, the thing that they were all drinking before noon. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and Scotch was a suspected disinfo agent, and he confirmed Nosenko's story. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Nosenko also had lied about his rank in the KGB. Uh, this inflated rank was even confirmed in his KGB documents, further arousing suspicion. Uh, but again, I think this could very much be like he was trying to make himself seem more useful than he was. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, now, one of Nosenko's big gives was about what the KGB believed to be a busted operation, looting a NATO safe in Paris of, like, kind of, like, NATO-like secret documents. But the operation wasn't, in fact, blown. The KGB was mistaken, and Nosenko offered it up anyway. Like, the KGB was, uh, they had an agent looting the safe and giving them the documents so that they could copy them, and then putting the documents back into the safe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> one of the times this agent uh, fell asleep and missed his meeting and uh was so embarrassed that he like came up with some bullshit story and the kgb was like shit we're fucking like he got found out so they they thought the operation was blown but in fact it wasn't the dude who just fell asleep <laughs> <laughs> and you know this is uh, kind of used as evidence maybe that nosenko was a plant but i mean i i i mean i think this could just as much be evidence that he thought he was actually I don't really buy that. That means yeah, that he's a plant, yeah, whatever, you know. Now, Galitsyn himself re- really only provided about as much useful information as Nosenko. Yet, for some reason, Angleton and company loved him. Like, most of the information that they were giving up was the same, mm-hmm. you know. And Galitsyn, for his part, absolutely preyed upon the CIA's weariness about Nosenko, claiming him to be a disinformation agent, a provocateur, and said Nosenko was trying to destroy him, i.e. Galitsyn. And Angleton and his staff gave the odds of Nisenko being a false defector at 85%. How they arrive at that, I don't know, reading different sentences in the chronology and deciding that those mean something, I guess. Drinking as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Getting to the bottom of a decanter of bourbon. And uh, now this rubbed uh, some at the CIA wrong, in part because if Nisenko was a false defector, it damaged Galitsyn's credibility which Angleton refused to hear of. So, like, it's kind of like this Catch-22. If Galitzin has Angleton's full confidence, and he claims Nosenko is a false defector, uh, but if Nosenko... Uh, or he's claiming that, uh, yeah, Nosenko is a false defector. If Nosenko isn't a false defector, it damages Galitzin, yeah. which da- damages Angleton. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of this, like, kind of conundrum going on right here, where, like, they almost because of the stake that Angleton has put in Galitzin, they almost need to find Nosenko as a false defector. Yeah, yeah. And the FBI, for what it's worth, they would take control of Nosenko, and they would conclude, after, you know, the years of imprisonment, that Nosenko was likely a real defector. <laughs> after um, all that, like... Yeah, after all, yeah, because, like, uh, they put, uh, the CIA put uh, Galitzin, or sorry, Nosenko through, like, polygraphs, but during the polygraphs, they would, like, torture him. Right, okay. So it's, yeah. Sounds sounds like textbook stuff really, to be fair. Yeah, so it's like you like none of the information that you can get is useful because you're <laughs> fucking torturing the guy, so obviously he's going to be stressed. 
you know. But then uh, the FBI gave him a polygraph and said that he like passed completely yeah. because they weren't, you know, fucking torturing him. Like at one point, uh, there's a story in Wilderness of Mirrors where apparently uh, Nosenko, during one of his uh, polygraph interrogations, the agents took two different lunches, one of which lasted four hours, and they just left him strapped to the chair. <laughs> so they went to lunch for like two hours, came back, questioned him a bit, then went to lunch again. And left him there for like four hours just strapped to a chair. <laughs> this guy fucking, he did not have a good time. They're just affected. diabolical bastards, aren't they? Like, Yeah. Like, they, like you have to wonder, this guy must have been really pissed at himself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for fucking defecting. Like, God damn, man. <laughs> um, also, uh, so Morley, Jefferson Morley and the Ghost, he recounts the story of Mary Mayer uh, smoking weed and taking LSD with JFK. There's something worth mentioning here as well, which is I won't get exhaustively into the the story. Um, I, yeah. I did an episode about it a couple of years ago. But so Angleton was uh, friends with uh, the Mayers. So Cord yeah. Mayer was Mary uh, Pincher Mayer's <coughs> husband. He yep. was a CIA agent, and he we mm. mentioned him earlier, didn't we? He was one of these like liberal idealists who joined the agency, thinking that yeah. it was a force for good in the world. Uh, also, he says anyway. Um, yeah. Now, he would end up working on um, Operation Mockingbird, I think. You know, the media infiltration part of the CIA, like propaganda and, yeah. and PR and all that sort of stuff. Yep, yep. So, Mary Pinchot Mayer had an affair with JFK. And this yep. is where this story comes from about dropping acid with him. Then, um, after JFK was assassinated... Mary Pincher Mayer was jogging one day and she gets shot in the head yeah. and killed. And, you know, they I think they initially tried to pin it on some poor guy who was just... Yes, it was like there. a black guy yeah, who was yeah. nearby. Yeah. And uh, obviously didn't stick. And then um, on, I think it was either on or, or just after it happened, um, some friends of hers were coming around to her house to get her uh, diary. Um, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. they knew that she'd been keeping quite a lot of detailed information in there about, you know, things like the affair with JFK and whatnot. And she was also a painter as well. So they'd come around to the house to, like, get some of her works in progress and some of her finished pieces as well. Yeah. Uh, so they didn't get, you know, thrown out accidentally or something. They fucking find James Angleton at <laughs> yeah. the house trying to break into it with a fucking a burglary picking the kit. lock. Yeah, like a lockpick kit. He's yeah. there. Um, just hunch, hunch, like hunched over the fucking safe. Unbelievable. And the weirdest thing about that story is after they've kind of said to him, like, all right, mate, like, what the fuck? What the fuck are you doing? Yeah. They go into the house with him, you know. Um, and this diary, uh, I can't remember what became of it in the end. Did it just, dis- it just disappeared or something? Um, uh, yeah, they, they let him take it. I yeah, think. they let him take it. And he disappears they? it. Um, what the fuck? Um, Dude. <laughs> And a few years later, when Card Mayer, he's thoroughly disillusioned with everything at this point. Um, yeah. So years later, he's on his deathbed, and he says he knows who uh, killed his wife. And I think it was a journalist he was speaking to. He'd basically cut a huge promo on the CIA and you know the state of American intelligence and whatnot. Yep. And the journalist says to him, "Who was it?" And he said it was the same bastards who killed JFK. So yeah. Yeah. Make of that what you will. Yeah. Yeah, fucking... And, like, also, she was apparently friends with Timothy Leary. Yes, you know? yes. 
some spook alarms going off there. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And told him about when she took acid with uh, JFK. <laughs> but yeah, the, the fucking the image of fucking uh, Angleton trying to break in. <laughs> I, like he, he probably fucking 10 drinks deep at that point. Yeah. It was like in the evening. That's the thing. Uh, this is the... What I've never understood about that story, and the only reason you can explain it is drunkenness, is he's the head of CIA counterintelligence. He must have some black bag guys that can go out and do this for him, you know, if, if he really needs to get into this house. Like, yeah. he just murders And he on just decides there. to, yeah, because they were like neighbors. They like lived right next to each other yeah, or something. Yeah. So he decides to just shuffle his drunken ass over there and gets caught fucking red handed. Oh, God. Probably just wild. fucking reeking from, you know, 10 yards away or something like that you know what i mean like god damn um but yeah so uh now it's uh you know we're in the late 60s and uh angleton uh finds himself this is when he really starts getting involved with uh israel and yeah. uh he has something of a role in the israeli arab six-day war uh possibly even aiding uh the an israeli attack on an american ship that was administered by the NSA off the coast of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they try to play it off. I think they try to play it off like it was the Egyptians that attacked it. Yeah, uh, something like kind that. of a, a false flag for... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but, like, Angleton maybe tipped off the Mossad or whatever that <laughs> that ship was there and monitoring, like, communications. And so, like, because the Israelis did, like, a some kind of, like, sneak attack mm-hmm. on the Arab states around them. And so, uh, you know, at this point, you know... It, Israel wasn't quite as uh, as uh, intertwined in the West as it is today, but um, so Angleton like maybe like gave them the tip off that they need to fucking bomb that NSA ship. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's still really widely admired in Israel up to the present day. I think there's like two memorials in uh, Tel Aviv to him. Yeah, maybe not Tel Aviv, but certainly two memorials in Israel to James Angleton uh, for yeah. the help and assistance that he's given them over the years. Um, I won't get too deep into this, but there is mm-hmm. the story of Israel heisting the uranium from uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah. That's the story yep. in and of itself, man. You could probably do like an episode just about that. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that could be its <laughs> own thing. <laughs> but yeah, there's some suggestion that uh, Angleton was at the very least aware that Mossad was in the country to do that, and he didn't have a problem with it, you know. Yeah, yeah, there was like a, there's this like Pittsburgh uh, uranium plant that was enriching uranium obviously for uh, uh, nuclear bombs or, you know, uh, reactors. And fucking Mossad heists it. Like, those, like, Ocean's Eleven shit and heists fucking enriched uranium. Now, Israel still uh, is coy about whether or not they have atomic bombs. Yeah. Um, It's it's like the world's worst kept secret, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so this is thought to be when they first... uh, acquired it, uh, enriched uranium, they fucking steal it from a goddamn, like, Pittsburgh enrichment, uh, uranium enrichment plant, and Angleton most likely at least knew that it was happening and turned a blind eye. Yeah. Um, although, you know, there's some interpretations that he, uh, actively aided it. But, uh, yeah, it's just straight up fucking enriched uranium stolen from the U.S. and, uh, brought, brought to Israel. Yeah. I, I would recommend, actually, um, for anyone who hasn't read it, check out uh, The Samson Option by Seymour Hirsch about this. Uh, well, not just about this heist, but like about Israel's nuclear weapons programs in general. Um, it's yeah. well worth your time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, um, you know, 
that that's just a a little uh, uh again another little aside into the mind of James Angleton. <laughs> the mind uh, of Angleton. Point. Yeah, yeah, the Angleton mindset. <laughs> um, now, uh, by the late sixties, uh, Angleton's paranoia had gone completely out of control along with his drinking he believed british labor party leaders were soviet agents he believed again from galitzin that the sino-soviet split was a ruse to distract the west uh galitzin was basically always with angleton and nosenko was uh in uh, in his uh black site sojourns was uh subjected to lsd and mk ultra yeah um and eventually in 1967 helms finally told angleton to stand down on nosenko and by 69, Nosenko finally was able to start the path towards being cleared for civilian life. This period of time, the late 60s, um, in the history of the CIA, it's yeah. so, so important to, um, to, if you're interested in the CIA and just, you know, parapolitics or whatever in general, it's mm-hmm. so, so vital to get an understanding of this period of time. Because, I mean, this here, where he's, he's talking about uh, British Labour Party leaders being Soviet spies or KGB agents or whatever... That would have ramifications down the line. Um, again, too much to get into right now. But Harold Wilson was suspected by a group of kind of disaffected MI5 reactionary officers of being a Soviet mole, or of being at the very least a communist sympathizer, and that he was kind of trying to smuggle in um, communism, you know, by the back door uh, into Britain. Yep. And a lot of this was fed and fueled by people who'd worked with James Angleton. So the CIA, even when Angleton's gone, they are still getting together with their like um, colleagues in MI6 and MI5. And mm-hmm. yeah, just, you know, it's like a little poison sewing circle or something. Um, <laughs> and this, it, if there's rumors, and I think there's plenty of reason to believe it's true, that um, the, mil- the British military... And um, the British security state were making uh, serious plans to move against the Harold Wilson Labour government and actually do a coup um, yep. and then bring in a kind of corporate junta that would have been overseen by Lord Mountbatten. And much of this is off the back of the shit that James Angleton was just peddling in the late 60s. So, yeah, um, if you think that just getting rid of these guys sort of fixes the institutional side of things it doesn't you know like they yeah, no. they create a culture there and at this point the cia has just completely trampled over all the whatever weak boundaries were there in the first place you know that was supposed to constrain their activity and what they could do they're completely off the chain now oh yeah yeah immediately they begin yeah. like domestic operations you know what yeah. i mean like uh, yeah uh, yeah really like people like angleton are products of the cia you know mm-hmm. what i mean like yeah. uh, it, it both uh, uh draws people like him and molds and shapes people like him you know yeah i mean when you think it was formed by like you know lawyers from wall street who were used mm-hmm. to fixing certain things a certain way so that you know like sullivan cromwell for instance so that yep. companies like united fruit or the you know oil companies could get what they wanted out of um whatever country it was they wanted to exploit the resources of that yep. kind of cultural outlet, that that mindset was right there from the beginning at the, the foundation of the CIA. They knew exactly what the project of the agency actually was. And it, very little of it had to do with like security or, you know, defense yep. of democracy and all this shit. It was, yeah, it was a money-making enterprise first and foremost. And when you're in yep. that elite circle, you feel entitled to do whatever you want, you know. 
Yeah, it's like a Smedley, uh, Smedley Butler. You know, he talks about when uh, he was, you know, a Marine general. Like his disillusionment came, like he was basically like, yeah, I was a, a, a henchman of capital. Like, yeah. like America was invading its neighbors in Latin America just to uh, even even back to like the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, mm-hmm. we were already doing shit. You know, basically just uh, invading places to uh, secure American dollar. Yeah, you know what I mean. And the CIA was really just a codification of this. Yeah. So, uh, also in the late 60s, uh, Angleton's paranoia was increased by, uh, by the ongoing rejections of the Warren report about Kennedy's assassination. Angleton led something called the Garrison Group to spy on Jim Garrison's case against CIA asset Clay Shaw. And uh, uh, this group was apparently very pessimistic about the, about the case, allegedly going so far as to confidently state that Shaw would be convicted of conspiracy with Oswald. Um, I spent years it- trying to do the... Tommy, Learn, uh, Tommy Lee Jones version of Claire Shaw's voice. Yeah. I was just obsessed with trying to nail it because it's just such a good like accent that he does. Yeah. I won't do it, don't worry. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm gonna enjoy some etouffee. <laughs> You've got me consorting with a frightful cast of characters, Mister Garrison. Can't do it anymore. Okay, she can't talk. Yeah, it's fucking uh, yeah, that horrendous uh accent by um, what's his name? Fucking uh. I can't remember who plays Jim Garrison. Just like not at all oh, like Kevin a New Orleans Costner. accent. Yeah, Kevin Costner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that that movie's so fucking funny. Goddamn, <laughs> the the bizarre fucking like orgy scene. Yeah, yeah. You were liberal, but, uh, Mr. Garrison. <laughs> just whipping him with chains <laughs> attached to his nipples and shit. Dude, it's so fucking. <laughs> And fucking uh, Joe Pesci as fucking David Ferry. Yeah. With yeah. just his eyebrows falling <laughs> off and shit. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so anyway, um, Angleton's uh, extreme paranoia to the late 60s really kind of took control. Um, so uh, he so there was whiskey bought just for him at the U.S. Embassy in Israel, and he was convinced, and his friend personally delivered it, and he had like apparently a total meltdown, and this was kind of like one of the turning points in his career. When people kind of started to realize that he had lost it. Yeah. Like, he believed that the KGB had poisoned this. Yeah. The whiskey that was just bought by his friend and delivered to him. And, like, he had, like, a total meltdown and had to be, like, calmed down. Uh, and this was uh, this was in Tel Aviv, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Philby's book uh, was released in 1968. Uh, this is Kim Philby. He released a book about, you know, his career as a double agent. And it further devastated Angleton as he... And the CIA were made out to be complete fucking fools in it. Uh, and then <laughs> this this ruined him so much that he came down with a bleeding ulcer that year and began coughing up blood and uh, became determined that it was Kim Philby that had brought ruin upon him. Oh, Jesus. It's, yeah. It's just, ah, uh, what a story, you know? I mean, yeah. this guy, I, I hope that at the very least we've kind of illustrated to people why he is just so interesting He's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. He's uh, he, he the character you can't help but he believes read more and more in it. He believes in this mythology that he's constructed so much. He gives himself a fucking ulcer, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. He's like he has a meltdown in an airport in Tel Aviv because he believes a bottle of whiskey that was bought to him <laughs> by like a good friend and delivered personally. He was convinced that the KGB poisoned it. Yeah. Like, like, like he has a fucking complete meltdown about this. <laughs> like they have to like, like get him out of there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fucking and, hell. um, 
yeah you know what i mean and so you know and now we you know we move on to the 70s and this is where you really get angleton's downfall um his family but not him uh weirdly converts to sikhism um i have something about that actually um yeah. that was the thing i was going to tell you uh so i won't name the listener because i'm not sure how cool they'd be with me naming them yep uh, but they sent me an email a, a couple of was it last year yeah it was last year um and basically, yeah, they um, they told me that their parents were hippies who had discovered um, Kundalini Yoga um, yep. and 3HR and they converted to Sikhism. And um, the founder of this cult was a, a bit of a, a wrong and as we say, who's uh, quite abusive. Anyway, um, they... Uh, they say that they grew up in this cult with James Angleton's grandkids. Um, what? Yeah. Uh, I, I won't go too much into like specifics yeah, and yeah. stuff because it might give away their identity. And um, yeah, I'm not sure how cool they'd be with that. Yeah, yeah, um, no, no, that's fine. But yeah, it's it was just so wild, you know, and then it's like, oh, here's another bit of Angleton law to sort of delve into, you know, just this connection to this strange cult. Brilliant. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. His family like leaves him, and then they all convert to Sikhism. Yeah, and like they change their names and everything like that. It's uh, just yeah, another another fucking notch in this weird story of James Angleton. Yeah, I mean, if this was like a movie, like Goodfellas, this would be the part of the film where the voiceover comes in and says like, "This is the bad time now." You know, like yeah, yeah, this is the <laughs> yeah, fall yeah. here. Yep. Now, um. You know, so so we're in the Nixon administration right now, you know, and uh, Angleton's just like completely gone at this point. He somehow finds his way kind of in the middle of, or at least uh, putting forward opinions about the Watergate break-in, including claiming to not know who E. Howard Hunt is. <laughs> like he just offers, I was like, I don't even know who that is. It's like E. Howard Hunt's like an old school CIA guy. Yeah. Like they yeah. worked together. <laughs> uh, it's just like, why are you even inserting yourself into this? <laughs> Um, sort of like fat Tony in it, just like what's a moida? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Nixon, uh, you know, so DCI Richard Helms, he he ends up uh, Watergate ends up being his downfall as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Angleton has kind of like uh, an embittered sort of relationship with William Colby. Uh, now William Colby is one of those self-proclaimed liberal idealists in the CIA. I think he might be full of shit, but uh, you know he he claims to be that. And he is not really convinced by fucking James Angleton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He thinks Angleton's full of shit. And, uh, well, he's right. And uh, at this point, like, Angleton became, like, pretty reviled by many at the uh, overhauled CIA in the 70s. Because, you know, his booze-fueled hunts had turned up to basically nothing factual or actionable. And the counterintelligence programs were left atrophied, at least in these uh, CIA agents' eyes. Yeah. Just incidentally as well, I mean, we're talking about loose threads being tied up. Um, if you haven't heard of William Colby, listener, uh, have a have a search, have a read about him and read about how he died and um, see what you make of that. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. And then uh, eventually Angleton's downfall would come at, uh, you mentioned him before, Seymour Hersh, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote an expose in the New York Times about Angleton's malfeasance in spying on Americans through chaos and wangwool. Yeah, uh, and uh, Colby would ask him for it. 
I mean, he had no choice at that point. You know, it's yeah. like you're not going to clip James Angleton. You know, there's still that kind of residual uh, warm feeling towards one of the founding fathers or whatever. But you can't keep this guy on at this point. I mean, even yeah. if Colby was just purely cynical and wasn't really this like liberal idealist or whatever. Yeah. There's no way. It's just untenable at this point, you know. Something like chaos really should have led to the CIA's destruction, you know. It should have been yeah. as JFK wanted to do, it should have been scattered to the winds, you know. Um yeah. it's incredible that it managed to survive the 1970s. Yeah, yeah, seriously. They they really found a way to uh, get through. I mean, there was just constant you know, committees mm-hmm. and investigations into it. Um, but yeah, so uh, uh, Angleton would like have another meltdown about this Cyher story, and he claimed that uh, one of the reasons he was so mad was <laughs> that his wife didn't know he was in the fucking CIA. <laughs> Wait, Jim, like, Jim like, Angleton's wife didn't know he was yeah. in the CIA. <laughs> yeah, he was just like Cicely didn't know I was in the CIA. You blew my cover. <laughs> what fuck it? Like you are like what the fuck are you talking about? Like, he's just fucking soused at this point. Um, yeah, and I told the story, too, about how when he was fired, uh, some reporters cold called him, and he, uh, he he was, like, making dinner, and then he just starts talking to them for, like, an hour, and then burns his dinner, and starts yelling at them on the phone, saying that they made him burn his dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Classic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's always someone yeah. else's fault for James, as my mother would say. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I do, I do, I think Angleton was, I mean, he was obviously a menace and needed to go, but I do think, uh, you know, when it comes to like chaos and lingual, he wasn't the only person involved there. So I think like some of the uh, malfeasance was hoisted upon him. He was yeah. made to be kind of like, you know, where, where the entire malfeasance in order to like, kind of like see through the house select committee well, on assassinations and the church committee yeah i mean that that's a standard kind of cia thing you know yeah. at some point you go in to have to find the scapegoat like the sacrificial offering so that you yeah. can create the illusion of reform and change and then mm-hmm. you know you, you submerge and wait for the the storm to pass um yep. yeah and angleton was the sacrificial offering this time around well yeah one of them anyway yeah yeah absolutely and, uh, you know, he would, uh, uh, of course, he would not face any charges based on his uh, illegal programs. Um, and uh, the, in 1977, the Justice Department announced that he would not be indicted. Um, but, you know, Angleton, uh, he found himself at the center of uh, a lot of happenings there mm-hmm. in the mid-century, you know. And um, uh, you, you mentioned it before, but uh, there was the famous... Uh, instance of when Angleton's successors crapped open, uh, cracked open his legendary cracked open, <laughs> cracked open his legendary safes and vaults, outspilled the sordid secrets of a lifetime of service to Alan Dulles. Yeah, and you've actually got a, a quote from the Devil's Chessboard for that. Among the trove of classified documents and exotic souvenirs were two Bushman bows and some arrows, which the CIA safecrackers wisely tested right away for poison, knowing Angleton's reputation. The safecracking team was also horrified to find files relating to both Kennedy assassinations and stomach-turning photos taken of Robert Kennedy's autopsy, which were promptly uh, which were promptly burned. These two were mementos of Angleton's years of faithful service to Dulles. There's something else as well which is very interesting about him, and it's the mm-hmm. fact that by the time he's he knows that he's not long for this world, you know, and yeah, it's yeah. pretty much the end. There's almost a he becomes obsessed with like you know 
the concepts of like Catholic guilt and spiritual redemption and whatnot. And obviously it's very evocative of um, his favorite poem. And he says this, and I think he told this to um, Jefferson Molly, or did he? I can't remember now. Um, But he said this quote, fundamentally the founding fathers of US intelligence were liars. The better you lied and the more you betrayed, the more likely you would be promoted. Outside of their duplicity, the only thing they had in common was a desire for absolute power. I did things that in looking back on my life, I regret, but I was part of it and I loved being in it. And then he goes on to say that if you were in a room with Alan Dulles and Wild Bill Donovan and all those guys, you had to believe that you were sitting with men who were going to end up in hell, deservedly so. And then he concludes with, I guess I will see them soon. (laughs) Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Damn. Oh, he told yeah. he, he told that to Joseph Trentel, that's right. Uh, he wrote yeah. Prelude to Terror, I think. That's also a great book. Yep. But yeah, and, uh, and then in a weird bit of synchronicity, James Angleton died on May 11th, 1987, and then his old friend and mentor, Kim Philby, followed him to the exact day a year later. Jesus, yeah. Yeah. And now uh, I want to read from uh, another T.S. Eliot poem here. Just to, just to close it out. And this is the ending of East Coker. Home is where one starts from. As we grow older, the world becomes stranger, the pattern more complicated, of dead and living. Not the intense moment, isolated with no before and after, but a lifetime burning in every moment. And not the lifetime of one man only, but of old stones that cannot be deciphered. There is a time for the evening under starlight, a time for the evening under lamplight, the evening with the photograph album. Love is most nearly itself when here and now cease to matter. Old men ought to be explorers. Here or there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity. For a further union, a deeper communion, through the dark cold and the empty desolation, the wave cry, the wind cry, the vast waters, of the petrol and the porpoise, in my end is my beginning. And that's James Angleton. That is the ghost. Yep. What What were some of his other names? The spider, the ghost. There was another one yeah. as well. Uh, or the orchid keeper. Was that yeah, it? the orchid keeper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he famously kept uh, orchids. Yeah. Mm. Again, yeah. like your first day of induction, seven hour run, and you're just surrounded by potted plants and overspilling filing cabinets and safes full of poison arrows and Kennedy autopsy pictures. And a quickly emptying decanter of whiskey. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, uh, Matt, I want to thank you so much for coming on here and doing this with me. This has been great, um, man. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, this I had a blast. And uh, I, you know, I would like to say too, uh, for all my listeners, uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend Ghost Stories for the End of the World. It's uh, probably my favorite podcast. And uh, oh, cheers. And man. Uh, yeah, and Matt's uh, Matt's awesome. So you. Write, record, produce, and uh, make the majority of the music for it too, right? Yeah, I when I was starting out, I used to just use tracks, and then someone mm-hmm. um, reminded me of you know copyright law and shit. So yeah. <laughs> I was like, probably best to just use my own stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it's awesome. So I mean, like uh, Ghost Stories has a very, very definitive and uh, unique sound, and uh, I have to, uh, I I can't recommend it enough to all of my listeners. So if you've uh, if you've enjoyed Matt on here, then absolutely you can uh, you can get plenty more. 
where that's from with uh, Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Awesome, man. Good to meet you. Yep. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, brother. Thank you very much. No worries, man.